also to the book of James chapter 4. James chapter 4. And God put us on this mini-series last week when we began chapter 4 and quickly learned that, that the cause and cure for wars was going to become a three-part series that we would look at. In fact, we looked at the cause and cure for wars regarding the war that is taking place within Winning the war within the first four verses. And James, what he's doing here is that he is exhorting the believer, the Christian, in regards to their faith. What is true saving faith? This is what he asks them. This is what he challenges their faith. If you say you're a Christian, you say you have faith in Jesus, then show me by your life that your faith is real then show me by your profession, by your works, that what you say is real in your heart, that your faith is working. And one indication that your faith is real is that there is a difference between your life and the life of the people that don't believe in Christ. There should be an obvious difference, I want you to know this today, between the church and the world. There should be no confusion as to why you live the life you live. There should be complete clarity, separation, distinctive. I live my life separated unto God. You know what that looks like, being born again? You gave your life to Jesus Christ. You've experienced regeneration. You're born of the Spirit. God has separated you now for His special purpose. And now that we have been saved, He exhorts the believer, the Christian, those who profess to have faith to examine themselves whether or not their faith is actually real. In fact, he asks, there begins chapter 4, verse 1, with the question, where do fights and wars come from among you? Where, where is it that these wars, these prolonged conflicts, these unresolved conflicts, where is it that these fights where are they coming from among you? These speaking to the church, speaking to the Christian. What is the problem? Why is it that you can't get along? The problem and the heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. And he explains to him the reason why you can't get along where there's fights and there's wars and there's conflict and there's strife and there's division is because you're living for your pleasures. Pride is the problem. Would you write that down today? Pride is the problem. What is the cause for wars? Pride. Pleasure, the flesh, the lusts. This is where the wars are coming from, from the pride within, from the lusts within, from the problem of living for pleasure. And he's letting them see that a living faith does not exist to satisfy the flesh. You are not called to live for the world. You cannot please the flesh and please the Lord at the same time. You cannot please the world and try to please God at the same time. You can't live with this carnal, compromised lifestyle. In fact, in verse 4 of chapter 4, he says, friendship with the world makes you an enemy of God. You, you are attracted to the world still, he says. 
Don't you know that being enamored by the things of this world makes you an enemy of God? Can't you see that, that your emotional now feelings and attachments that you have towards this world makes you an enemy of God? That lust, that pleasure, that pride that consistently pulls you into the world, do you not see that this makes you contrary to God's will? There is a separation. There has to be a contrast. You cannot be a friend of the world and a friend of God at the same time. So what is the solution to this strife that is happening within them? What is the solution to the conflict within the church right now? Maybe even in your marriage or in your family. You want to know what the solution to every problem when it comes to conflict and strife is? It is to, in humility, get right with God. You know what we need to do? Humility. Humble ourselves and get right with God. So he says that very thing. If there's conflict, the answer is you must humble yourself and get right with God. James 4, beginning in verse 5, we'll read together. In fact, I want to invite you to stand on your feet with me and we'll read God's word together. We'll read from verses 4 to verse 7. I'll read the even verses. You read the odd verses out loud together. James 4, 4, adulterers and adulteresses. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. But he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Lord, you have given us the answer to the problem of the heart. That is your grace. That, that is humility. Lord, you have diagnosed the problem in our hearts and given us the solution here. We ask that today we would approach your word in humility. That we would not live in the flesh or with the heart in heart or with the proud resistance. But that we would receive your grace and humility. Teach us now what it looks like, what it means to truly trust you as Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name, together we said, amen. You may be seated. So notice as he mentioned the cause for the conflict, the cause for the war, selfishness and pride. Pride is the problem. Here comes the cure for wars. The cure to every problem, pay attention please, whether it's the war within the spirit in the flesh, the war with one another, or the war with the devil, the, the answer to the war that is taking place is all the same. You know what the answer is? The grace of God. That is the answer to every war that takes place in the life of the Christian. The answer to every war, to every conflict, to every strife is the grace of God. Would you say that aloud with me? The grace of God. We need more of the grace of God. In fact, notice in verse 5, this is the cure. And he says this, or do you think that the scripture says in vain? You should take this serious. Friendship with the world does mean that you're contrary to God. Worldliness 
provokes God to jealousy. And notice how he describes it there in verse 5. Do you think the scripture says in vain, why aren't you taking this serious? You can't live a double life. That's not what it means to follow Jesus. Do you think this is written with, with no power or with no purpose or, or that God is not serious when he says this? In fact, his spirit yearns jealously. What spirit is he referring to here? This is the indwelling spirit that God has placed within us as we've been born again. The Holy Spirit's not only inside you, he's alongside you, he, he's upon you. And the Spirit of God that he puts in your heart and in your life, notice what it does. It, it yearns jealously. He desires his Spirit within you that we should be faithful to him. His Spirit in you desires that you would be faithful to God. Not that you would be unfaithful. Not that you would be an adulterer or an adulteress, as he would mention there in verse 4. But his spirit in us yearns, desires that we follow and fellowship with God exclusively. Notice, God doesn't share the hearts of his people with sin. God doesn't share your mind with any other type of rival. He wants to reign in your heart. He wants to reign in your mind. He, he wants to be the ruler of your life. He wants you to wholeheartedly follow him. And this is why he says this, uh, remind yourself this, his spirit desires you all to himself. Did you know God loves you that much? He desires you all to himself. Sometimes we think of that word jealousy as something that is so corrupt. But here comes from a pure motive of love. God loves you that he desires you all to himself. God does not want anything competing or standing in the way between you and him. And his spirit that dwells in you yearns jealously that you fellowship with God first. In fact, that is yearning for your entire devotion over to God. Did you know that this word here, jealously, describes one of the attributes of God? We think of God being loving and just, merciful, Gracious, but God is also a jealous God. He desires an undivided heart. He does not want your heart to be divided between the world and him. He does not want your life to be partitioned, to be secluded, to be sectioned off between you and God and then the world. That is not what he desires. He yearns jealously for you. He wants an undivided heart. God is asking for your undivided attention. That's what he wants right now. That's what his spirit is yearning jealously for. In Exodus chapter 20, verse 5, would you take note of this in the Old Testament? Exodus 25, notice what God says. You shall not bow to them nor serve them. Don't bow to the idols of those pagan gods of the people who don't worship God. Don't compromise. Don't be divided. Don't, don't separate your life in sections or in fractions where you say, I please God on Sunday, but on Monday I please and serve someone else. 
God wants you fully and completely wholly overgiven to him. In Exodus 25, notice what it would say, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. What is God? He is a jealous God. And he's visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third, fourth generation of those who hate me. God examines the hearts. And he says, don't serve them. Don't bow down to them. Don't follow them. Don't be attached to them. His spirit in you yearns jealously so that you live a life of no compromise. What is God's desire for your life? That you would live a life of holiness. He doesn't want anything to come between you. He wants your exclusive love. Do you remember where Jesus said in Matthew 22, 37, he, he says it so clearly so that we understand it. Jesus said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with what? All of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind. What does this look like? This looks like absolute surrender to him. This looks like he now has the entire space of your heart and mind that he reigns, he rules over your life. Now he speaks of the spirit of God yearning in us jealously. Why? Because the Holy Spirit wants your complete obedience. And I want you to remember that this morning, complete obedience, because sometimes we offer God something that's partial and we're satisfied with that. That is not obedience. You delaying obeying God is not obedience either. You offering God incomplete obedience does not please him. Remember this, incomplete obedience is complete disobedience. God wants you to fully obey him. And his spirit within you is yearning jealously that you live your life for him if you claim to have faith in Jesus Christ. This is what it means to live for him. There is a constant war that is taking place inside. What is the war within? The war between the flesh and the spirit, right? Paul said the things that I don't want to do, I find myself consistently doing in Romans, he says. And all the things that, that I want to do, I, I can never do those things. There is a constant war within us, Galatians 5.17, notice what he calls it. For the flesh lusts against the spirit. The flesh always wants to do something contrary to the spirit. And the spirit against the flesh. And these two are contrary to one another. That is the constant battle within taking place. So that you don't do the things that you wish. That conflict is between the desire to satisfy the pleasures of the flesh, and the desire to satisfy the will of God. What is the Spirit doing in us right now? Yearning, desiring, jealously for your faithfulness, your devotion unto God that nothing would get in the way. In fact, would you put a marker there in James chapter 4 and turn with me to Romans 8 quickly? It speaks of living your life for Christ as a born-again person, living a life in the Spirit. And it supports here what James is saying, James 4, as we look at Romans 8. Because those who live in worldly lusts give evidence that their faith is not real. Those who live after the flesh 
only give evidence that their profession of faith is false. If you say you have faith in Christ Jesus, I believe in God, I think I'm going to go to heaven because I'm a good person, but your life says something completely different, then that profession is false. Notice what Romans 8 says about this. Romans 8, verse 5. For those who live according to the flesh, notice what they do, they set their minds on the things of the flesh. If you live according to the flesh, not born again, the Spirit of God not living in you, you're going to live only for what the flesh wants, for what the flesh craves. But those who live according to the Spirit, notice what it says, the things of the Spirit, they set their mind on spiritual things. For to be carnally minded, what is it? It's death. When your mind is on carnal things, it only leads to death. But to be spiritually minded, notice what comes out of that, life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God. The carnal mind is contrary to God. For it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So then, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Do you see that? Can you please God if you're in the flesh? No, you can't. Can you please God if you're living for your own desires? You cannot please God that way. Those who live according to the flesh cannot please God, but you are not in the flesh. You're in the spirit now. You've been born again. He's reminding the church there, the Christians of Rome there, you're in the spirit now. You've been born again. If indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. Do you see that? What does the spirit of God do? It dwells in you. It's there to convict. It's there to guide. It's there to lead. It's there yearning jealously for your undivided attention and devotion, faithfulness to be given over to God. Now, if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he is not his. Notice, this is how you know whether or not you're walking with Christ truly. And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, what does he say? The spirit of Jesus, the spirit who raised him from the dead lives in you. He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Think about that. The spirit that raised Christ from the dead lives in you right now. And you know what he's doing? He's giving you the power and the strength, the conviction that you need so that you live wholly over to Christ. He's yearning jealously for your attention. There is a difference between those that live for the spirit and those who live for the flesh. There is a difference between a believer and an unbeliever, from a person that's saved and a person that's not saved. And James here is describing that there is a difference between those that are friends with the world and friends with God. Remember, God's spirit yearns jealously, giving you a desire to live exclusively for him. Notice in verse 6, back in James 4, as we go back there, he says, but he gives more grace, therefore he says. It's not only his spirit that is yearning in you jealously for him. It's not only God who has put that desire in you to seek after him. Have you ever been at home and maybe watching TV or sitting down relaxing, and then something gives you a desire to go read your Bible. 
or knowing that you're maybe going a direction that you shouldn't or entering a relationship that you shouldn't be a part of or going and affiliating yourself with people that you shouldn't and you start to receive the conviction of the Holy Spirit. That is the Holy Spirit yearning jealously for you because God wants all of your life and attention. Not only does God give you his spirit, but also he gives you his grace. That's amazing here. It says, but he gives more grace. Who gives grace? He gives grace. The cure to the conflict is the grace of God. Uh, Think about that today, please. The cure to every conflict in your life right now is the grace of God. What do we need right now? God's grace on our lives. That is the cure when we diagnose the problem in the heart as to why there's strife and division and worldliness and carnality and compromise. The cure to every problem of sin in our hearts, it's God's grace. And notice here in verse 6, he describes it, but he gives. Who gives it? God gives it. And what does God give? What only he can give. Grace. What is grace? It's receiving a gift that you don't deserve. We have received grace after having experienced mercy when he forgave us of our sins. He did not give us what we deserved, which is judgment, but then he gave us grace, what we don't deserve, which is love, eternal life. It's not based on what we do. It's not based on how we perform, our accomplishments, our works, but it's based on his faithfulness. The only hope to all of mankind's problems is the grace of God. Aren't you grateful that the answer is not politics? It's certainly not presidents. It's not policies. It's not the United Nations. The answer to every problem is the grace of God. That is the answer to every problem. It's his sovereign grace. But he's not speaking of saving grace here. I want you to pay attention here. He's speaking of enabling grace. He's speaking here of sustaining grace. It's grace for living that can rescue you from the lust for evil things. It's the grace that gives you the strength so that you say no to the lust of the flesh. It's the grace of God that strengthens you through every test, every temptation, every conflict, every trial. It's the sustaining grace of God enabling you, helping you to live a life in this fallen world. How can you do this every single day? It's the grace of God. We do it every day. That's how we do it. His grace is sufficient. For what? To meet every one of your needs. Right now you find yourself in a conflict. His grace is sufficient to meet every one of your needs. You find yourself in, in a, now, temptation, in a trial. His grace is enough to strengthen you for it. Do you remember when Paul had this thorn in the flesh in Corinthians? And what did he, he do? He, he prayed three times, Lord, I pray you take this thorn, this trial, this painful thing away from me. He said, three times I prayed and the Lord said, no, I've given that over to you to buffet you. It's always interesting. The very thing we don't want is what God has given us. It's to buffet you. It's to keep you humble. But what did the Lord say? My grace is sufficient for you. My grace is made perfect in your weakness. 
What does grace do? It gives us the strength to live a life that pleases him. Not only is the Holy Spirit in us yearning jealously, but God's grace is enabling us every single day to give us the help that we need to live for him. In Hebrews 4.16, would you note this this morning? Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace. Aren't you grateful that the Lord has named his throne? He's given his throne a name. God has given his throne a name. The name of his throne is called grace. Come boldly to the throne of grace. What do you get? What do you receive when you go to the throne of grace? Grace. When you go to the throne of grace, we approach him. That's what we're expecting. Come, come boldly. Come, come now expecting. Come ready to receive. This is the throne of grace that you may obtain mercy and find grace to help. Notice, what are you going to find? Grace to help in time of need. If it's your time of need right now, if this is your hour of need, notice where you have to go. You're directed to the throne of grace to find mercy to help you in your time of need. The sustaining grace, the enabling grace, the grace that helps you live your life for God. But notice it is how it describes it. He gives more grace. Don't you love it that it says more grace? It doesn't say he gives grace. Well, what does he give? Say it with me. More grace. You know why he says more grace? Because his grace is greater than the power of sin. Because his grace is greater than the power of your past. Because his grace is greater and stronger than any kind of grip that Satan has on your life. Because his grace is greater than any type of problem that you're facing in your life right now than the power of sin, than the power of the flesh, than the power of the devil. His grace is greater. In Romans chapter 5, when Paul would tell the church, yes, with the law we saw that our offenses abounded. Through the law we found out that we missed the mark and our sins were exposed before us. They surfaced before our eyes when we were known to be transgressors of his law. We found out how sinful we were with the law. And with the law, sin abounded. But where sin abounded, notice what he says, grace abounded much more. What does this mean? Grace upon grace. That's what more grace means. It it was grace upon grace upon grace. In John 1, 16, this is what the apostle says regarding Christ of his fullness we have received and grace for grace. You know what we've received in the fullness of Christ? Grace upon grace. There was a story of an anonymous painting of the Niagara Falls that I heard about that ended up in a gallery. Well, the artist hadn't given the painting a title, and the person now in that gallery decided to entitle the painting after noticing how beautiful and detailed the painting was of of the overflowing waterfalls of the Niagara Falls, that it looks like a strong rushing waterfall coming down. And it's amazing what they titled this painting. It had no title. Notice they entitled it this, More to Follow. Why? Because there's more water coming and coming and coming and coming. Think about, isn't that great? Billions of gallons of waters that have gone over the Niagara Falls. 
years after years, and we can safely say there is still more to follow. It just keeps coming and coming. That's the same way when it comes to God's grace. There's more to follow. There's more that's coming. (laughs) There's always room for more grace in our situation. That's why he gives more grace. But notice this, even before we go on in verse 6, grace and pride, because he's going to speak of humility, grace and pride are eternal enemies. You know what the enemy wants you to do as a friend of the world? Pride demands that God bless me in light of my merits, whether they're real or whether they're imagined. God, you bless me because of what I've done. But you know what grace does? It says, Lord, don't deal with me on the basis of anything of me. That's what grace does, whether it's good or bad, but only on the basis of your cross and who you are. And it's important that we realize this because God desires to give us more grace. You know what holds back God's grace in your life? Your pride. (laughs) This is why he says, therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. What's the answer to every problem, every conflict, every situation? The grace of God. How do you receive the answer to every problem, which is the grace of God? By humility. He quotes there Proverbs 3.34. God resists the proud. What does it mean to resist the proud? God opposes the arrogant person. The person that thinks I don't need a God, that has a hard heart. The one that thinks I can live my life however I want. I, I I can live my life in my own standard. God rejects that proud person. That that arrogant attitude that stands before God, that way will not receive grace. Think about that. If you're standing before God With that attitude, you're not going to receive God's grace. Who does he give grace to? The humble. That's an attitude. Humility is an attitude. Note that this morning, God gives grace to those who have a humble attitude. God wants us to depend upon his grace. God is ready to give us his grace. God wants us to know his grace is available to us. You know what the enemy wants us to do? He wants us to depend on ourselves. Satan is the author of do it yourself. Do you know when our pride kicks in and nobody wants to help us? All right, I'll just do it myself. I can do it better on my own. The enemy wants to inflate your ego so that you think of yourself only, that that you don't regard other people, that, that you don't seek for God's help, that you don't rely on God's grace. He wants you to think that you can do it your own way. You know what pride does? I'm going to be independent of God. I'm going to live my life however I want. That's pride. The enemy would like that you depend upon yourself. God desires that you depend upon his grace. God wants us to be humble. God wants us to approach him this way. What the enemy wants is that he would use pride as his chief weapon for the Christian to get you off track, off of God's plan, off of God's path, and so that you don't obey God's directions. Did he not do that with Eve in the Garden of Eden? What did he say? You will be like God. Oh, you don't need God. You don't need to obey. Inflating of the ego, the pride, the independence, the knowledge, depend upon yourself. That's what the world wants you to believe right now. Depend upon yourself. You know what the Bible tells us? Depend upon God's grace. 
How do you receive grace? It takes humility to receive grace. He gives grace to the humble. God resists the proud. He gives grace to the humble. I like what D.L. Moody said. I think he said it best. When he said, God sends no one away empty. God sends no one away empty except those who are full of themselves. God sends no one away empty except those who are full of themselves. Why do they leave empty? Because they haven't humbled themselves yet. They are proud. You want to leave full today? You want the grace of God before you go home? You know what it requires that we humble ourselves. In 1 Peter 5.5, when speaking regarding submission or unity, or the cure for war. Notice the cure for war. First Peter 5, 5, Peter tells the church this. Likewise, you younger people, submit yourself to your elders. You want to have unity? You want to get along? There has to be submission. Submit yourself to your elders. Submission. Yes, all of you then be submitted to one another. Submit yourself to one another and be clothed with humility. This is the only way submission can happen. You want submission? A mutual submission, a submission in the marriage or in, or in the home. Be clothed with humility. God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Now notice this. It isn't as if our humility earns God's grace. Don't think that. Don't say, you know what? God, give me grace. Don't you see how humble I am? You know, grace is that one quality. When you think you have it, you lost it. If you say, you know what? I am not humble, I am prideful, then you're right. And the person that thinks, you know what, I'm so humble, I don't need the Lord, you're wrong. You need the Lord. Humility, you know what it does? It, it just, it puts us in a position to receive God's free gift that he gives to us. It's the posture of a heart. You, you want to posture your heart with the right attitude so that God can do a work in your life. What, what seems to be the problem? What, why can't we get along? Why is there no submission? Because we have yet to humble ourselves to receive from God the answer to this problem, which is grace. You notice those who submit to God's wisdom, what does God do? God gives them everything they need for that situation. It's been said before this, that humility is the repentance of pride. You want to pursue humility today? You know what we need to do? Repent of pride. Humility is the repentance of pride. Now notice, I'm going to give you four points here that quickly tell us more about what humility does for us, who God receives, who God rejects. In Isaiah 57, 15, this is who God dwells with. Isaiah 57, 15, who he dwells with. For thus says the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place with him who has a contrite and humble spirit. This is who God dwells with. He dwells with the humble. To revive the spirit of the humble, to revive the heart of the contrite ones. You want revival? You want to regain faith, to regain strength, to regain spiritual life? God dwells with, God lives with, the humble. This is why humility is such a key. This is who he dwells with. Number two, who he receives. Who he receives. Proverbs 3.34. 
quoting here James as well. Surely he scorns the scornful. You know what it means? He rejects those who reject him. You have a proud attitude? He scorns the scornful. You have an attitude right now, you cross your arms, I don't care what they say today at church. I'm still going to have my way. You come with a hard heart, you're going to make it harder than it has to be on your own self. You know why oftentimes it's, it's hard? Because you made it that way. It didn't have to be that hard, but you refused to humble yourself. Now you have to pay a greater consequence. He scorns the scornful, but what does he do? He gives grace to the humble. This is who he receives. Who he dwells with is the humble and contrite ones. Who he receives is the humble, who he regards. How about that? Number three, who he regards. Psalms 138, verse 6. Though the Lord is on high, yet he regards the lowly, but the proud he knows from afar. You know what the proud, the Lord says? He says, stay away from me. Get away from me. You're too proud. You can't approach me that way. The proud, notice, he knows them from afar. He knows them from a distance. They aren't close to God. He who is on high, the Lord regards the lowly. He regards the humble. This is who he dwells with. This is who he receives. This is who he regards. But notice, number four, who he saves. You know deliverance right now from your situation? You want the Lord to, to come and, and deliver you from whatever it is you're going through? Well, God delivers the humble in Job 22, 29. Notice, when they cast you down and say exaltation will come, notice, when they cast you down, say exaltation will come, then he will save the humble person. You know who God saves the humble person? He doesn't save the proud person. He doesn't save the person that's independent. He saves the one that's depending upon grace, not the one that's depending upon self. These are the distinctions that James is giving us regarding who is truly walking with Christ. Now, as we go, as we go there to verse 7, he's saying, put into practice this principle of humility through the power of the Spirit. In James 4, 7, this is why he says, therefore, in light of the grace that is offered to the humble, there's only one thing to do now. In light of what you have known here through his word, what is it that we should do? Submit to God. This is what we are called to do in light of God's grace. Not to abuse his grace. Not to neglect the grace of God. Not to grieve the spirit of God that indwells within us. Not to live a compromised life. What did Paul say? Shall we sin that grace would abound? Certainly not. You're wrong. Don't do that. Now that you know that God gives grace to the humble, what should you do next? Submit to God. That word submission is a word that this culture resists. It, it repels this world. Submission. Because it, it would make people believe that they're inferior but you notice what, what this is here. This is an order of importance. This is an imperative command. This is not a suggestion. This is not, you should try this out, submission. You know what this is here? This is a command that's imperative. That, that means reoccurring. It means consistently. It, it means this is ongoing. You should always do this. This is not a one-time event. This is 
a daily attitude and behavior, discipline in the life of the Christian, that they are to submit to God. Every day as you wake up, you say, Lord, I'm in direct submission to you. Those are my orders. I respond to my orders. Because it's a military word as well. And you know what it comes with, that word submit to God? It comes with a a sense of urgency. It's demanding this complete and immediate compliance. Urgency, comply, immediately, respond. Now, get in your proper rank. When you think about submission or proper rank, it really is telling us that you need to get back in your place. We don't like to hear that. But some of us today need to get back in our place. You're out of line. You need to get back in line. You need to fall back in rank. You need to humble yourself and go back into the plan of what God has for your life. That's what it's referring to there. It's that you abandon your selfish pride. It's that you abandon your stubbornness. It's that you no longer say, I will. That's what we like to say. I will do this. I will do that. I'll get my way. No, you don't say, I will. You know what you say? Thy will. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's your will. It's not my will, Lord. It's your will. This is what it means. Get back into your proper rank. Fall back in line. Order yourself under the authority of your commander. Who is the commander that has authority over your life? God the Lord and master of your life. He is the Lord and master of our life. So what are we to do? Get under the authority of the Lord and master of our lives and don't resist. Now, submission to God, notice one thing, it's very important that you see it here, is that it it requires humility. This is an act of the will. You have to voluntarily do it as well. Get back in line as an act of the will which requires humility. Notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say fight God. It doesn't say resist God. It doesn't say push against God's plan. Instead, it's surrender. Instead, relinquish your plan. Instead, now resign from your rights and your program and what you desire. Submit to what God wants. It's an unconditional surrender and obedience, which is the only way to complete victory in your life. You want victory right now in your life, whether when it comes to the conflict, whether it's the marriage or the family or your spiritual life? You feel overwhelmed by the enemy, defeated, overtaken? Notice this here is the key today, unconditional surrender and complete obedience. Submit to God means you obey whatever he says. That's the only way to see victory in our lives, that you obey what he says. If there are any areas in our life that are held back from God, there will always be battles. And you'll say, I'll I'll submit to God, except in this area, there's going to be battles. You have to completely submit without reservations, without hesitations. You have to say, Lord, I I submit to you. I I hold nothing back in my life, knowing that only this way will there be complete victory. Now, notice something here as you look at this, submit to God. You cannot submit to God if you're living a life of pride. If you're living a life of pride, you can't submit to God because you'll always want to have your way. I like what Ellen Radpath said when he said, the essence of sin, the essence of sin is arrogance. It's so true. The essence of sin is pride. It's itself, is arrogance. 
But the essence of salvation is submission. Because it means that not only is he my savior, but he's the Lord of my life. And if he's my Lord, that means I'm in submission to him. This is what he's referring to. I like what Richard Baxter, an old-time preacher, said, recorded as his last words. Notice what he says, Lord, what you will, where you will, and when you will. It's not what you want. It's not what I will. It's what, what you will. Lord, what you will, where you will, and when you will. This is the attitude of humility that God wants us to have. How many times have we said, Lord, use my life? And he says, okay, this is what I want you to do now. Oh, Lord, anything but that. No, no, it should be an attitude that says, Lord, where you will, when you will, and, and what you will, I will do. That's the attitude that becomes a recipient for the grace of God because he's prostrated their hearts in the right place. Notice, submit to God. After you've done that, then you can do the next one. Resist the devil. There's so many people that say, you know what, I'm going to resist the devil. The devil's no match for me. Better be careful. You go out trying to fight the devil in your own strength, you're going to be humiliated. You're going to be overcome, overtaken, defeated. We don't fight the devil in our own strength. We fight the devil in the power of the Spirit of God. That's how we fight the enemy. So after submitting to God, notice, after submitting to God, here comes the next military word and order. Take your stand against. You're submitted to God, and now you can take your stand against the devil. It doesn't say negotiate with the devil, compromise with the devil. No. The best way to resist the enemy is to first be submitted to God. That is the best way to resist the enemy. First be submitted to God, because when you submit to God, that leaves the devil face-to-face -face with God. He has to answer to him now. Someone said, when the devil comes knocking at the door of your heart, have Jesus answer the door. He's no match for him. Submit to God, then you can resist the devil. You can resist any temptation the devil throws your way. Here is the command, resist the devil. It's a command now, take your stand. Resist. Stand your ground. Don't retreat. Because now you've fallen in line to your commander. You're under his authority. There where you are, where he wants you, now you can resist the devil. As long as you're submitted to the guidance and power of the Holy Spirit, to the governance of God over your life, as long as you are under the authority of what God wants, you can stand victorious against any attack of the devil. If you're standing in the power of the Spirit where God wants you, the command is that. Notice what the promise is there in verse 7. And he will what? Flee from you. He will flee from you. But you are to stand by his grace. You are to stand submitted to God. You are to stand humbling yourself before God. The reason why the devil oftentimes has room in the life of the Christian is because the Christian hasn't submitted to God yet. So you give him all the room that he needs in your life. You know what Ephesians 5, 4, uh, 4.27 says? Ephesians 4.27, he says, don't 
give place to the devil. How, how do you not give any room for the devil? By giving all the room to God. <laughs> By letting him reign and rule in your heart and life, being submitted to him. 1 Peter 5, 8, Peter tells the church this. Be sober, be vigilant. Sober means don't be influenced by outside things that can intoxicate, disturb your mind. Be vigilant means awake. Don't be distracted. Be sober-minded because your adversary, the devil. Don't you love that Peter here, God through his word speaks to Peter and he gives your adversary a name. The adversary is the devil. The adversary is not your next door neighbor. The adversary is not your boss at work. You know who the adversary is? It's, it's the devil. It's not your spouse. It's the devil here, your adversary, the devil. You know how the devil walks around like a roaring lion. He's seeking who he can devour, divide, overtake, destroy. That is the devil's purpose. That gives you more of a reason as to why you should be submitted to God because the devil is seeking who he can devour. He wants to divide families. He wants to destroy marriages. He wants to come and divide the church. He wants there to be wars and fights among you, James 4.1. So you must fall back in line, submit to God, then you can resist the devil. You know how Jesus resisted the temptation of the devil? In Matthew chapter 4, four times, he was tempted by the devil in the wilderness regarding the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, all three temptations that you face every single day in your life, Christ himself, God made flesh, was tempted. He responded every time to temptation. It is written. How do you fight against the warfare that comes and the temptation that comes to your life by the enemy? You respond with scripture. It is written in God's word. You do not expect to stand against the devil. You're not in the word of God. This is what helps you. Opening up the Bible, learning Scripture, memorizing Scripture, meditating on Scripture. Before, I, I remember growing up in the church, we memorized Scripture all the time. Now, with technology, you know what happens? You want to pull up a verse? You're not going to say, devil, just hold on. Let me take my cell phone out. I'm going to take Google out here. Let me look this one up. I remember there was a good one. You know what the Bible says? The psalmist said, your word have I hidden in my heart that I might not sin against the Lord. I can resist the devil. I can resist temptation. You can resist the conflict because the word of God has been hidden in your heart. Hide that word in your heart. The power of the word of God. This is how you stand against the devil. After being submitted to God, after being submitted to God, stand in the power of the word of God. After being submitted to God, you humble yourself, receive this grace. You can also stand, number two, in the power of the Spirit. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 6 to end. Ephesians 6, as we end quickly, let's go there. Verse 10. This is how we stand against the warfare with the devil. In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10, notice what he says. Finally, my brethren, be strong in where? The Lord, and in the power of his might, not your strength. Don't stand in your confidence, not in your confidence or in your power, but in his. 
This is how you have victory over the enemy, over the warfare. Brethren, be strong in the Lord, the power of his might. Don't rely, don't depend on yourself. Don't be so quick or arrogant or reckless or thinking that you can fight this battle in the strength of the flesh. You can't do that. You can't fight a spiritual battle in the flesh. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand. First time he mentions the word stand, which is the word resist against the wiles, tactics, strategies of the devil. This is how you resist. This is how you stand. Number one, for we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against rulers of darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. This is who your enemy is. Be aware of the enemy that's before you. Therefore, verse 13, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand, here it is again, the second time, in the evil day and having done all to stand the third time. Three times mentioned the word stand or resist. This is how you do it, in the power of his spirit, in the confidence of the Lord, with the armor of God. Verse 14, stand again. He says, resist, stand, don't give up, don't give in, don't retreat. Don't desire the easy way out. Don't want your way. You know what the problem is oftentimes why we, the, devil, the devil wins? Because you're not submitted to God. You still want your way. There's resentment in the heart. So he says here now, stand therefore, verse 14, having girded your waist with truth, not with lies, having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Isn't that amazing? The belt of truth that, holds the believer together during the battle and the breastplate of righteousness. We can do a whole series on this, but we've already done it. But you stand in the breastplate of righteousness. You know what the, the breastplate protects all the major organs of the body, but righteousness means that you're standing in the confidence of his righteousness, not yours. You want to stand against the devil? You, you notice how you stand? You stand against the devil having submitted yourself to the cross of Jesus Christ because there you find your right standing before God. You say, Lord, thank you so much that you have washed away my sins. I stand because you have declared me innocent and not guilty anymore. I am forgiven, I am washed, I am cleansed. I know who I am before God, therefore I can resist the devil. I know that I'm saved, I know that I'm forgiven, I know that I'm loved of God. What is the exhortation here this morning? The answer, the solution to every conflict is the grace of God. How do you receive that grace of God? By humbling yourself first so that you can stand against the devil. How many of us want to stand against the tactics of this world and the enemy? Amen? Let us stand today to pray.